right. Um, sorry you sat down. Would you stand one more time for the reading of God's Word? We've been in the parables of Luke. Uh, we're all oriented by something. Uh, we live in this world, and there's a kingdom, there's an approach that teaches us how we're to live and what we're to do and what we're to value. And Jesus, through the parables, reorients us to a new way of being as he's the new king with a new kingdom, and he's going to show us the new values of this kingdom. And so we've been looking at those for the last 10 weeks or plus, so we're going to continue on today. The parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Uh, Jesus, that's he, told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the word of God. You may be seated. I think I've told this story before. I was uh, uh, last year of high school and into college. I had a little part-time job in the summer. I'd just become a Christian. I was working at a business here in town in the summer, and a uh, prominent business, prominent business owner, and I was new to the faith, and I was excited, and so I began to talk to the guy that owned the place about religion and faith, and so I, I, uh, I, we got in the conversation of church, and I, I remember asking him, I said, well, where do you go to church? And he, he said, well, we used to go, and he told me about this church. I knew the church. It was a big church. It was a well-known church. Um, yeah, but we, we don't go there. Our family doesn't go there anymore. And I said, well, what, why don't you go there? And he said, well, um, true story. He said, you know, um, it used to be a church of, of prominent people, you know. It was, uh, it was a well-known, well-respected place. Um, and, then, uh, and then they got a new pastor, <laughs> and uh, they just started letting everybody come in. In fact, he said they would pick with bus, and they would pick up homeless people, and they would they would they would they would bust them in and, and uh, they would they would let them come to church. Uh, uh, drug addicts and, and alcoholics and and they would bring them to church and they're, they're sitting around us, uh, people from the wrong side of the tracks and they would be brought in to church and so it just changed the whole nature of the church and so my family and I um, didn't think it was the best place uh, for us to be anymore. Um, wow, <laughs> that, that's a true story. I was 18. I didn't really know what to do. I wish I had more boldness. I think I wanted a job, so I didn't say anything, but I just sat there. Uh, they weren't our kind of people, is what he said. Um, and so his family left the church. Um, that makes sense. That There's, there's man's perspective, um, then there's God's perspective. We're going to look at this parable. We're going to look at it man's view, kind of low view. Then we're going to look at kind of God's view, and then we're going to end with the words of Jesus directly as he speaks into this uh, story. Uh, imagine the situation from man's view. Um, we've heard a lot about the Pharisees of the last weeks, and I've said this repeatedly, but um, 2,000 years of biblical interpretation has given the Pharisees a bad rap. Um, we hear the word Pharisee, we think negative, right? And we're like, oh, the Pharisees are self-righteous religious people. But in their day, they were very popular. They were well-respected. They were the uh, popular class of religious leaders. They were experts in the law. 
Um, they were good folks. Uh, people envied them. They respected them. So let's give them uh, as much credit as we can. If uh, a new religious teacher would come to the synagogue, a prominent Pharisee would invite them for dinner. And if you were a congregant, if you were in synagogue, you would love to go to listen in, right? If you're another Pharisee, you might have an inside table. We see this with Jesus at times. But if you're uh, another congregant, you'd love to stay on the outside to just to hear, to be in the presence of the Pharisee and whoever the leader is that they've invited in. They were popular. They were respected. From the text, we'll give him credit. He's not a crook. He's not a womanizer. He's not an evil man. Unlike the tax collector, he is socially in good standing. He takes nothing he hasn't earned. He's not a robber. He's fair to everyone. He says he's faithful to his wife. I imagine he's a good dad. He's probably a good neighbor, right? He's the guy that's going to have his lawn cut nice and tidy. He's going to pressure wash his house. He's going to... Your property value is going to go up if you live next to a Pharisee, right? He's a guy you want to be your neighbor. He's a good guy. He's a Pharisee. The tax collector, on the other hand, he's the worst kind of crook. He's a legal one. <laughs> he's illegal. He's a Jew. He was a Jew, and yet he had co-opted, had worked with uh, the Romans who occupied the area. He worked for them to tax the people, and the way he got paid was that he inflated jacked up the price of the taxes, and he took the cream off the top, normally a pretty high pay. He paid the Romans their standard fee, and he took an amount. He was living well. He was luxurious. He had a nice life. He was despised by the community, but he was wealthy. He had no civic rights because of his standing. He was not allowed in the community to be a judge or to be a witness in a court of law. He was despised. He was the worst of the worst in that context. He wasn't religious either. He, he broke the Old Testament laws that talked about ethics and money and how you handle money. He was not right with man and not right with God. But the Pharisee, on the other hand, not only was he good, but he was religious. His outward righteousness was matched by his inward discipline. He fasted twice a week. That'd be sun up to sundown. Anybody done that before? Fasted? It's not that easy, right? He did it every week. He put his money where his mouth is. He gave 10% of everything he earned to God. He dedicated to God. The Pharisees were known of, of being meticulous in their giving. They would take even their spices and they would pour them out and they would take 10% of that and they would dedicate that 10% to the Lord. They were following the law, even above the law, to be, to be a giver. Even more so, he prays. He prays. He's in the temple, probably at the time of sacrifice. He's regular. And look what he prays. He gives thanks. The Pharisee gives thanks to God. Good man, religious man, thanking God for his happy, blessed estate. God, I thank you, he starts with. If this man comes in the door, if he's here today, he came in the service, we would be thrilled he's here. We'd give him one of the connect cards. If you're visiting, I hope you get a Connect card. And we say, please fill it out and put it in a little basket. We're going to call you tomorrow. You know, and Ryan and I are getting excited. This guy might be leadership material. This is great. He's, he checks all the boxes. He's awesome. G.S. Glenn says, the modern-day counterpart of the Pharisee would be welcome into any respectable community, religious or social, and given a responsible position. We would be thrilled to have him. That's man's view, right? That's how we see it. 
But Jesus is going to say, this man, a man that we all look up to, we're trying to figure out how he becomes an elder, is not only bad, but he's worse off than the worst of the worst. The cheating, stealing tax collector, who all he does is come in and say, have mercy on me, I'm a sinner. That's it. This guy has a great list. He's got a great history. And Jesus says, this guy's not only bad, but he's worse than this guy. And everyone knows about this guy. From man's view, this story makes no sense whatsoever. We need to understand, uh, our modern audience cannot appreciate how surprising and stunning this would have been in Jesus' day. It would have contradicted in every way that the worst guy is commended and the guy that everyone respected, the implication is he goes away not justified. He will be humbled in the end. Contradicts everything they knew. That's, the, uh, that's man's view. That's the, that's the ground level. Um, the problem with the Pharisee, God's view, uh, 1916 was the most lopsided uh, college football game of all time. It was the Cumberland College uh, team from Tennessee. They they were playing the Georgia, uh, playing Georgia Tech, and uh, in 1915, Cumberland College disbanded their football program, but they were in contract to play Georgia Tech, and so they were going to have to pe- play them, or they were going to have to give. Georgia Tech, a whopping sum of money. It was $3,000. Big money, right? I don't think any athletic program has that kind of money today. Big money back then. Big money. So the athletic director, they round the troops up. They got enough guys to go play. They got on a bus from Tennessee, and they drove down to Atlanta to play a football game. You can see how this is going. I did say it was the most lopsided game in football history. The score was 126 to nothing at halftime. The final score, 220 to zero. Georgia Tech did not throw a pass, but they scored 32 touchdowns on 922 rushing yards. Cumberland, on the other hand, completed two passes for 14 yards. It was minus 42 yards in total rushing. So Patrick, Tommy, you football guys, Brett, Wes, is he over here? You wouldn't keep your job if you're the Cumberland guy, but they disbanded. So you're like, wow, Pastor, that's really great information. (laughs) What does it have to do (laughs) with the parable of the tax cluster and the Pharisee? Imagine being in the game. Imagine being there if we stayed in the fourth quarter. Uh, We're still there for some reason. Maybe we're uh, enjoying the beautiful day in Atlanta. We're still there. It's five minutes to go. The game is over, right? I mean, even if you ran, if there was no defense on the field and Cumberland ran play after play, I don't think you could score 220 points in five I don't think you could do it. It's over. The game's over, but they're still playing the game, right? They're playing, but it's over. There's no chance. There's no opportunity. They can't win. They can't come back. They're playing, but it's over. The Pharisee has no shot of righteousness before God. Zero. He's in the game. He's got a list, but he's got no shot before God. He thinks the tax collector knows the game's over, but the Pharisee thinks he's got a shot. Listen to this. Listen to this. I don't normally read, but this is a couple paragraphs, but it's really good. Listen to this. 
Imagine God is sitting there in the temple, busy holding creation and being, thinking it all to existing, concentrating on making the hairs on your head jump out of nothing, preserving the daily lives of people, reconciling the street walkers in Times Square, the losers in the slum, the generals in the Pentagon, and all the worms under flat rocks in Brazil. And then these two characters walk in, the tax collector and the Pharisee. The Pharisee walks straight over, pulls up a chair to God's table, whips out a pack of cards, he fans them, he bridges them, he does a couple of one-handed cuts, an accordion shuffle, he slides the pack to God and he says, cut, I'm in the middle of a winning streak. God, said, God looks at him with a sad smile and gently pushes the deck away and says, maybe you're not, maybe it just ran out. So the Pharisee picks up the deck again and starts the game himself. AC, do see okay? And he deals God a two of fasting and a king of no adultery. And he says, look, I told you, God says, maybe this is not your game. I don't want to take your money. Oh, come on, says the Pharisee. How about seven-card stud, tens wild? I've been really lucky with the tens wild lately. And God looks a little annoyed and says, look, I, I meant it. Don't play with me. The odds here are always on my side. Besides, you haven't even got a full deck You'd be smarter to be like the guy over there who came in with you. He lost his cards before he got here. Why don't you both just have a drink on the house and go home? Finishes with this. Do you see now what Jesus is saying in the parable? He's saying that as far as the Pharisees' ability to win a game of justification with God is concerned, he is no better off than the tax collector. As a matter of fact, the Pharisee is worse off because while they're both losers, the tax collector at least has the sense to recognize the fact and trust God's offer of a free drink. The point of the parable is that they are both dead, and their only hope is someone who can raise the dead. The Pharisee thinks he's in the game. He thinks he stands before God on his merit, on his work. He thinks he's got to play with the Lord. The Pharisee thinks in human perspective, in terms of degrees, that the perspective of God is death is death. He feels good about where he lands. He lands better than other people. He's not an adulterer. There's a lot of adulterers, right? He's not a robber. There's robbers. From God's perspective, the game is over. There's no hope of righteousness before him. Maybe you feel this way. I, you know, one of the hindrances to coming to faith often is, uh, can be the good kid. Anybody the good kid growing up? You know, you get the labels, right? Um, I, I was sort of that in my family, which meant basically I didn't do anything outwardly really defiant. I didn't get caught doing a whole lot of bad stuff. I was kind of respectable. I was nice. Uh, there's certainly some common grace in there, some good parenting, hopefully, along the way. Um, but the problem with the good kid is that you feel like you rely on the goodness before God as if it got you a leg up before him. See, the standard's not one another. <laughs> the standard's the holy, living God. Often our goodness is related to our opportunity. I have a few friends that have played... Uh, professional baseball and other sports, and uh, they made it kind of to the top, and um, a lot of them, or a couple I mentioned, fell into uh, some difficult situations, some immoral situations, some lifestyle things that aren't so good, um, and it's easy to sit back in my seat and to be able to, 
to lob judgment, you know, grenades. <laughs> Look what they've done. Can you believe it? But the reality of it is, if most of us were given the same opportunity they were given, most of us would have done the same things that they've done, right? I think that's true. It's an issue of opportunity. One final reading, he says this, same, same commentary. Might not a very large source of your virtue be nothing more than a lack of opportunity? Have you never thought yourself immune to some vice only to find that you fell into it when the temptation became sufficient? The lady who resists a $5 proposition sometimes gives in to a $5 million one. Men who would never betray friends have been known to betray friends when they thought they were going to be betrayed themselves. The reformer immune to the corruption of power finds corruption easier and easier as he gains power. It's an opportunity issue, right? We don't, know the, we don't know the tax collector's background. We don't know the Pharisee's background. We don't know where they started. But their goodness, um, their goodness in man's eyes was so often related to their opportunity. But Jesus says, death is death. The game is over. The Pharisee had a faulty understanding of who God was and his character. God's two commandments, Jesus summarizes, to love God and to love people, he had failed, right? The law, Jesus said, he summarized the Ten Commandments, the two tablets of stone. First four related to a God. Last six or so related to man. This Pharisee, the religious, the self-righteous, he'd failed altogether. He tried to use his religious duties to gain points, to leverage himself with God. Fasting's a good thing. Prayer is a good thing. Giving's a good thing. Michael just commended serving, giving, participating, showing. All those things are good things. But when we use them as leverage, as though we're now indebted to God, as though we're in the game to somehow offer, commend some type of righteousness, that he would say, yeah, those guys are really, they're the good guys. We've missed it. We've missed the game. We've missed it. He's failed. He's tried to earn God, but he hasn't loved God. He tried to bribe God. And you know when you fail to love God, it plays out in your relationship to people. You can't love God and not love people that go together, 1A and 1B. He clearly plays out in his hatred of people, the Pharisee. He says... Uh, Jesus says in verse 9, he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Not God, didn't love God and trust him, trusted himself, and then treated others with contempt. Do you know that word, contempt? That's a heavy word. It means disdain. It means despise. The lexicon says this, it says, to show by one's attitude or manner of treatment that an entity or person has no merit or worth. He's praying in the temple. Thank God I'm not like other men, adulterers, robbers, even this Pharisee. Contempt and disdain. I love you, but I'm not like these other people. The famous uh, Aesop fable contains a similar story of a man like this. It tells a story of a man who prays, Lord, 
God, look with favor upon me and my wife and my children and upon no one else. And another man overhears the prayer and he says, Lord, Lord, almighty God, confound that fellow and his wife and children and no one else. <laughs> to pray for no blessing on other, but you're not like the other. The tax collector in all his brokenness and all his mess is an image bearer. Something about him, something about you, something about me. We're born, we bear the mark of God's image. We, we suppress it, it's been marred, it's been broken, and yet it shows itself in the way we care and the things we do. The Pharisee looks upon him with disdain. Do you know when you have disdain or contempt or hatred for other people, you're actually cursing people God made in his image? Did you know that? I love God. I just don't get along with those people. I can't stand those people. I'm cursing something God has said is good and gracious. The tax collector in all his sin and shame, standing far off, head bowed, bears the mark of God. There's man's view, there's God's view. Let's finish. Uh, there's Jesus' final words. He's direct here. He finishes the parable with shocking conclusion in verse 14. I tell you that this man, the tax collector, rather than the other, the Pharisee, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. The man, deeply disdained, not only by the Pharisees, but by everyone, by all Jews, was said to be justified before God, vindicated, declared righteous. That's a big Pauline New Testament word, legal word that says you are right before God. The tax collector. By implication, the Pharisee is not. The Pharisee is one of the ones that Jesus says in Matthew 7. In the last day, will say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this for you and that for you? And he says, what? Depart from me, for I never knew you. You did a lot of religious things, but I never knew you. It was an intimacy, relationship. You hadn't died yet. The tax collector, he's dead. I got no shot. Can't even look up. I'm on my face. The law keeper is the lawless one in the end. Maybe you're okay with that. Maybe you're, I mean, you read the story, you're supposed to not like the Pharisee, right? He's arrogant, he's self-righteous. I'm okay, right? He's, he'll be humbled in the end. And maybe you can stomach the tax collector. I mean, he least confessed, he cried out, he named that he was a sinner, he asked, he begged for mercy. Maybe God will cut him some slack. I can see God would justify him. Robert Capron is helpful here. We'll finish here. He says, uh, imagine you and I walked around for a week with the tax collector after this. For seven days, we walked around with him. What, what, do we, what do we want to see from him? What do you want to see in that seven days? What do you hope to find? What if you find... Uh, the same immoral, unethical lifestyle. And he comes back in the next week, and he, he comes to the temple again, and he, he cries out, and he says, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. What's God going to do? 
That's how you justify. It's going to send him home justified before God. We don't like that. <laughs> wait, 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 wait a second, Pastor. I'm okay with like the first time he cried out. But then he kind of has to get his act together, right? He's kind of got to, you know what we want? You know what we really want? We want to come the second week, and we want him to pull out the Pharisees list and read it. This is what I did this week. I fasted twice. I did Bible study. I had a quiet time. I went to the ladies' study. I began tithing. I went to hold those things out as things that would commend him before God. Some of you are really uncomfortable right now. Um, I'll probably get some emails and texts about it. Am, am I saying that the life change or good works don't matter? That's not what I'm saying. James says, right, faith without works is dead. I get it. I know. God's grace, we're sanctified, we're changed, we're grown. He works in us. The point of the parable is that none of those things add any value or merit or justification before God. We don't like that. We know the language of salvation by grace. We adhere to it. We say it. We confess it. But we don't really believe it. We think there's something in us, goodness, that commends us, that recommends us to God. We think salvation has something to do with our good heart. Because we've changed. We've turned over a new leaf. We think God says he's good because the man has finally gotten it. And what I'm saying is this. This man was justified by God not because he was being reformed or did reform his ways. He was justified before God because he admitted he was dead. Jesus did not come to reform the reformable or to improve the improvable. Jesus came to raise the dead. Do you hear that? He, he's not our uh, self-help program. We're not going to find him in the bookstore. In the cell. He's not there to kind of add on. He's there to raise the dead, which implies that we know and knowledge we're dead. Ephesians tells us that. All of Scripture tells us that. When I stand before God, when uh, in the end day, we're imagining here, um, he's not going to say, man, Ben, yeah, I'm glad after 18 years, that's where I became, you finally got together. <laughs> you know, you started treating people better, your view of women changed, your attitude was better, your language cleaned up a little bit, you know, <laughs> you started getting, I'm so glad you finally got together, you're in, right? Is he going to say that? No. He's going to say at 18 or before the foundation of the world, in my experience at 18, I set my affection and my love upon you, and I declared that you are righteous in Christ, that you are married eternally in my son, bound together because of the work of my son and his righteousness. That's what he's going to say. And he's going to say, it's been great to see you grow. It's been great to see you change. It's been great to see your attitude. It's been great to see the things you've done and the improvement and the way grace fleshed itself out in your life. But I'm not going to stand there and hold my list up. I'm not going to say I'm better than this guy. I'm going to say it's grace. Have you died yet? The way of the kingdom is always death before resurrection. It's Jesus' way, right? Jesus came to die. We died. Jesus is resurrected. We're resurrected. It's humility, 
In this case, humiliation before exaltation. He is exalted eternally at the right hand of God. We will be exalted, those that humble themselves, and those that are proud will be humbled. Have you died to bargaining with God, negotiating with Him, and have you cried out, have mercy on me, a sinner? It's not just a one-time cry. It's It's an often cry. It's a weekly. It's a daily cry. The degree we understand that is the degree that we understand who God is. It's the degree that we understand who we are. It's the degree to we understand who others are and how we love other people. Contempt has no place when we stand before image bearers. We realize, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. It is living and active. It is powerful. We just scratch the surface with it, but it, uh, it does a lot in our hearts and minds. May you use it now to bless us, to change us. Pray your grace changes day by day. I pray we see the fruit. We know your spirit works. We know there's growth. We know there's life. We know there's goodness. But may we know that our hope of life with you is based on your justification, that you declare us righteous because of your son. May we know that in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please rise as we say together this ancient creed that we confess, the Apostles' Creed. Please say this with me. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He descended to heaven, seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. We come, come here to the Lord's Supper through, through this church uh, and through a connection here with, uh, with Westminster. We were able, as a church, to minister to a man this week. Um, the man was 50. Uh, he uh, is dying of AIDS. Um, he, from his own words, lived 25 years in a promiscuous bar scene, gay lifestyle. Um, about a year ago, he came to, uh, to faith in Christ uh, to go to treatment. He was with an 18-year-old who'd come to faith, also had AIDS. Um, he got AIDS, the, the young man, through a needle, and they were there together, and the 18-year-old shared the gospel with him over and over and over. When this 50-year-old found out he had AIDS, he had progressed. He's six foot, used to weigh about 220. When I picked him up, he was about 110, 105, something like that. It shriveled up, and uh, we had a great conversation. He was really sharp. He was really smart. He, he loved the Lord. It was, it was a great conversation. Waffle House was involved, so that always makes things pretty good. Um, and um, I asked him, I said, you know, we haven't done a great job of the church uh, serving and loving the gay community. How do we do better? And he had some really good thoughts and really uh, good advice for a pastor and to the church and uh, practical ways that we can come alongside and we can help and we can serve. Um, but then he said, he said, um, when you pick me up, you, uh, you touch me. 
you, know, you shook my hand and you gave me a hug and, and you touched me. I said, well, look, we're, he, he's from Oregon. I said, we're in the South. We hug everybody. It's just kind of what we do. He goes, he goes, no, you don't understand. Like, there's still the stigma with AIDS and people have AIDS. Nobody touches me. People don't touch me. Uh, it, it hit me. I, I didn't know I wanted to say something profound or spiritual or pastoral or something. I, I don't know what you would have said. I, I, they said, did you just touch me? And we just talked. It's a brother in Christ. Doctor told him he had four to five months to live. He talked about eternity, talked about heaven, and he said, just come near. Just come, just touch, just touch me. Um, We come to the table because God's come near to us. God's touched us. God's entered in. Pharisee came up close. He had hands, eyes up. The tax collector was way back. He couldn't couldn't look up. It's It's an act of shame. He was covered. He was too far away. Have mercy upon me. Jesus brings us close, doesn't he? He brings us close. Scripture said he's the lifter of our heads. He lifts up our head. And you know what he does even better? You don't do this with tax collectors and sinners. He says, come and eat. Dinner is served. Life and fellowship with me. Can you imagine? As odd as it would be to commend a tax collector, Jesus commends us to come and draw near. And he doesn't come. We don't have to, to pay it off. We don't have to come with our heads down and kind of embarrassed. We get to come asking. We get to come freely. We get to come together. We get to enjoy and eat a meal. And he touches us and he welcomes us. And he serves us. This is his body, Jesus said. He took the bread on the night he was betrayed, and after giving thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which has been broken for you. Likewise, he took the cup. He says, this cup is the new covenant. It's a new relationship. It's forged in my blood. As often as we drink this cup and we eat this bread, we proclaim his death until Jesus comes again. May he come soon. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this table. It's bread, it's wine, it's simple, ordinary elements that you use to minister to us, to teach us, to show us the good news of the gospel. We can taste it. We can smell it. We can touch it. It's true. It's true. Some of us feel like the tax collector, and we're so thankful that the The ground is level at the cross. Some of us feel like the Pharisee, God, and you humble us. But the good news, you told a story about a Pharisee because you love Pharisees too. You humble us and come. May we come and eat this meal together.